This episode of Gospel Bound is brought to you by Crossway and the new ESV Bible app. The ESV Bible app is designed to help you engage with God's Word on a deeper level, offering elegant, intuitive features to personalize your study, including multiple audio recordings of the full ESV text, audio playlists, customizable background music, daily reading plans, and more. Download the ESV Bible app on your phone or tablet, or visit esv.org to get started. Hey, Gospel Bound listeners, on today's bonus episode, we're featuring a selection from TGC's narrative podcast, Recorded. This episode is called Escape from Kabul, where TGC senior writer Sarah Zalstra tells the story of God's dramatic work through the underground church in Afghanistan. To hear the full episode, make sure to subscribe to Recorded wherever you listen to podcasts. Good afternoon. I'm speaking to you today from the Roosevelt in the White House. After consulting closely with our allies and partners, with the Congress and the Vice President, as well as with Mr. Ghani and many others around the world, I've concluded that it's time to end America's longest war. It's time for American troops to come home. The United States will begin our final withdrawal, begin it on May 1 of this year. We'll not conduct a hasty rush to the exit. We'll do it responsibly, deliberately and safely. And we will do it in full coordination with our allies. When Joe Biden announced last April that all American troops would be leaving Afghanistan, nobody familiar with the country thought it would be able to stand up against the Taliban. The wobbly Afghan government, paid for and propped up by the United States since 2004, had never seemed to grow any stronger or any less corrupt. Meanwhile, the Taliban never seemed to give up. The Islamic fundamentalist group had been overthrown by the U.S. invasion in 2001 and had been waging a persistent insurgency ever since. When the cold of winter came each year, they would retreat south to Pakistan, where they would rest and reorganize. When the weather warmed up, they would emerge and take control, mostly over southern rural areas of the country. U.S. intelligence initially estimated that the Afghan national government could last about two years on its own. But you know this story. In just 10 days in August, while the Americans were still in the country, the Taliban swept through every single provincial capital, including Kabul. They advanced so quickly, they surprised even themselves. The Taliban is in control of Afghanistan by surprise. Caught off guard, thousands of Afghans began to run, especially those who feared for their lives. Former employees of the collapsed government, those who had worked with Americans, and Christians. The Christians were especially interesting, because while conversion was illegal even under the Afghan government, the number of believers had been steadily growing, from an estimated 2,000 in 2013 to about 10,000 in 2021. How were so many hearing about Jesus? With everybody keeping their faith a secret, how were they connecting with each other? And how on earth were they going to get out? Humanitarian crisis now unfolding children on the edge of starvation, a two-year-old weight, just 11 pounds. And with the Taliban now in control, ISIS is now taking aim My name is Sarah Zylstra, and I record stories of where God is at work in the world for the Gospel Coalition. To hear this story, I had to fly halfway around the world, but not to Afghanistan. 
I landed in Dubai, the largest city in the United Arab Emirates. In many ways, the UAE is a bridge between the Middle East and the West. While technically a Muslim country, the leaders don't suppress the religion of foreigners. And since this oil-rich country is full of foreigners here for a job, literally 9 out of 10 people are from somewhere else. That means the UAE has considerable freedom of religion. That fact is critical to this story, which actually starts a few hours northeast in Afghanistan, the country that replaced North Korea this year at the top of the world watch list of the hardest places on earth to be a Christian. I was born in Afghanistan and the central parts of Afghanistan when it was the communism government. And then when I was grade four, the Mujahideen came. And then when I was grade seven, um, the Taliban came. And then when I was grade 10, the new democratic government after 9-11 came. So I have had four regimes during my school. Yeah. So That's Luke Anwari. I've been careful with identification. However, the names and places I've been able to include are accurate. I'm sitting with Luke in his apartment in Dubai, where he lives with his wife and four daughters. Luke was born in 1987 into a pretty unstable country. Every few years, the government would change hands, which meant that Luke had to change his school uniform, his textbooks, even the definitions of his words. For example, under the Soviets, communism meant justice. After they left, it meant infidel. When the Taliban took over, Luke had to start wearing a turban to school and taking a lot more classes on the Quran. In between, while one power was trying to overthrow another one, there was fighting and violence. Fighters would come and they would bomb the city, and especially our school was right opposite from the airport, so they would bomb a lot of the airport. So there was no windows, no nothing, because all broken because of the bombing and the pressure for that. And Already in grade school, Luke knew how to hide from incoming air raids. You can duck down near a load-bearing wall or a pillar, hoping it will shield you from a collapsing roof or wall. Or even better, you can race outside for the ditches where there is no building to fall on you. When Luke was in junior high, the Taliban took over Afghanistan. People were terrified. Taliban soldiers shoot first and ask questions much, much later, if at all. But they were big on religion, and Luke was too. I was very passionate about the religion. I was really passionate about God and, 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 and meeting God. Um, I would pray, I would fast. I was in grade 9 and 10 and 8, and that those years with Taliban control, we would like go to the madrasa, which is a regular school that, of course, half of that was still Islamic teachings. Apart from that, he would go to mosque and give the religious teachings as well, where I was like memorizing Quran. He would read the interpretation of the Quran. When Luke was in ninth grade, a motivational speaker from Osama bin Laden's camp came to his school. He talked for three hours about how America would probably attack, about how to prepare for a jihad against the infidels, and about how Osama bin Laden was a brother who needed protection. At the end, he gave an altar call. Whoever wants to dedicate themselves to the holy war, step forward now. Moved, Luke came forward. He did want to give his life to Allah. He was given a black turban to wrap around his head, and everyone applauded. But later, when he told his father what he'd done, his dad exploded, even chasing him around the house. He told Luke to go right back and take his name off that list. He did not want a life of violence for his son. Had Luke's name actually been on the list, that would have been nearly impossible to do. But Luke was related to the school principal, who had not included Luke in his list of volunteers. Hey, he told Luke, don't make that kind of stupid decision again. 
A few months later, al-Qaeda terrorists flew planes into the Twin Towers in New York, the Pentagon in Washington, D.C., and a field in Pennsylvania. Al-Qaeda was based in Afghanistan, and a furious President George W. Bush demanded that the Taliban extradite Osama bin Laden. The Taliban refused, and in early October, a U.S.-led coalition easily toppled the regime. That fall, Luke headed to medical school in Kabul, where NATO and American forces were trying to set up a fledgling democracy. In his province of a million people, he'd been one of only 12 boys who'd been able to finish enough school to graduate. Around this time, Luke was having his own crisis. He read about God meeting Moses in the burning bush and on Mount Sinai. Why can't I meet with God, he asked his teachers. We'll pretend we didn't hear that, they told him. You aren't supposed to ask questions like that. Luke was confused by that, and also discouraged by his prayers, which never seemed to do anything. Islam was starting to seem like a collection of made-up stories. Tired of it, Luke quit religion. But it was harder for him to quit God. Remember that we're studying anatomy of human body the first semester. The second semester, we're studying physiology, which more get into the system of body, how it works. And I remember that our professor was explaining and he was saying that if you built machines to do the function of our organs, there would be so many. And we'd need a lot of space, a lot of energy, and a lot of manpower to run that. And that was making me very curious that it should be a God that makes yeah. this. At school, Luke became friends with some South Koreans. They prayed like he'd never seen anybody pray before. He figured that since they were from the East, they were Buddhists. Nope, they told him, we're Christians. More specifically, they were Presbyterians. Scottish and American Presbyterian missionaries brought Christianity into Korea in the late 1800s, where it was immediately popular. After the Korean War, Christianity continued to boom in South Korea, more than tripling in followers from 1950 to 1970. By the early 2000s, when Luke was at medical school, the Korean church was sending out more missionaries than every other country except the United States. They didn't stick to easy places either. South Korean missionaries have been kicked out of Pakistan, kidnapped and killed in Yemen, and beheaded in Iraq. When Luke first asked his Korean friends for a Bible, they were too scared to give him one. Come to our house and you can read it here, they told him. So every Friday, he went. They started with the Gospel of John, Luke couldn't understand it, but his heart got caught on John 10.10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. In Farsi, that phrase is translated as, I have come to give you eternal life. And the very first time I met with my Korean friends, I went to that verse, I opened that and I said, I have a question, explain to me what really this means. Like, I'm really upset at that. I said, what does it mean to have eternal life? They said, if you believe in Jesus, you will have eternal life. I said, you will not die? They said, no. I said, how not die? Like, where is your parents? Look at the graveyards, there's crosses on top of that. Are these people not dead? They said that they're dead bodily, but not their spirit. means like they said, no, if you believe in Jesus, you will have eternal life which means that your spirit will live forever. Your spirit will not experience hell or separation from God. Intrigued, Luke decided to read the whole Bible. It took him two years. By the end, he was a believer. But he couldn't tell anybody. The few times he tried to mention something to his friends, they told him to be quiet. Don't talk to us about that. It's crazy. It's dangerous. But he did tell one person. (laughs) 
Before Luke was born, he was engaged to Sarah, a girl who also wasn't yet born. Their grandparents were from the same village, and their fathers were friends. When their mothers became pregnant, their fathers decided that if the genders worked out, one boy and one girl, they'd cement their family's long friendships with a marriage. Sarah also knew how to hide from air raids and what it was like to grieve loved ones killed by rockets. But unlike Luke, she had a huge gap in her education. The years the Taliban had been in charge, she'd had to stay home from school. Sarah was 17 and in eighth grade when she was formally engaged to Luke. They didn't know each other well, but at their engagement party, he did confess to her that he was a Christian. She had no idea what that was, so she told him it was okay. After they got married, she noticed he wasn't praying at the mosque with the other men, and so she asked him about it, and he gave her a children's Bible. I read this one. I really like this story. Yeah. And I said, I love this story. I really wanted to read this. Okay. But he told me, okay, you have to read, we have to read very secretly. They did read secretly in their bedroom in his parents' house. After the children's Bible, they began reading the full Bible together. It was both confusing and lovely to her. She was living in a family and a culture that was Muslim, and she could see a difference in Luke. She could also see a difference in his friends. As you can imagine, it was tricky for Luke to get Christian friends. In his province of almost a million people, he was the only believer he knew. Even under the U.S.-funded government, conversion was not allowed, and so he looked for foreigners. When a friend told him about three foreigners who prayed before they ate food, he knew he needed to meet them. The guys were on a humanitarian mission and had begun working at the hospital where Luke, now a radiologist, was taking x-rays. He was scared to tell them he was a believer, and when he did, they were scared to hear it. They checked with his South Korean friend to make sure he was telling the truth. Their fear was well-founded. Within the year, the secret police told the humanitarian workers to stop talking to people about Jesus, and they asked so many questions about Luke that his boss told him he would have to resign. But by then, Luke and the foreigners had built a friendship, reading the Bible and praying together, and showing Sarah what Christian love looked like. That helped to convince her of the truth of Christianity. When the family began asking Sarah why she wasn't praying in the mosque, she told them she was praying in the privacy of her room. She didn't tell them she was praying to Jesus. I really feel like the lightness. I come from dark place to the light place before I'm really in the dark place. I don't know. Luke's friends connected him with a Christian from Bangladesh who connected him to a mission organization. He and Sarah did discipleship training for a few months in India, and they came back bolder. Well, I, I want to share my faith with others. Right. I don't know how. So right. I, mean, I learned about mission. I learned about, you know, how to share your faith. So really, like, it's like a whole different chapter. And I said, this is what I'm going to do in the rest of my life. This is what I want to do. The timing couldn't have been better. In 2010, Christianity was bubbling just a bit in Afghanistan. For example, a city that had one or two believers in 2005 had 15 believers in 2010. You could find Afghan Christians now if you were careful, and a small network was beginning to connect. One new believer was named Ramazan. He'd grown up in a Muslim family, and he was precocious. By the time he was 15, he had memorized 10 chapters of the Quran and was preaching in the mosque. He was also reading philosophers, Kant and Descartes and Sartre. Those thinkers stumped Ramazan on this question. If God created everything, who created God? Without a good answer, he gave up on Islam. 
but he couldn't stop the longing in his heart for God. He'd heard about Jesus, and once, in a desperate situation, out of gas and far from home, he prayed to Jesus for help. He switched on the motor and miraculously made it another 25 kilometers. He told Jesus, I am your soldier. For the next two years, Ramazan looked for a Bible, finally finding one through some Americans. Immediately, he took it home and shared the gospel with his friends and his family. Within a few years, he'd watched 12 people accept Christ. Around the same time, a young Muslim named Ramat went to visit his brother in India. Both their grandfather and their father were mullahs, leaders in the mosque, but Ramat's brother told him he'd converted to Christianity while watching God TV on a trip to Saudi Arabia. Ramat was livid, attacking his brother with both his fists and his words. After he calmed down, his brother told him to try reading the New Testament. And because Ramat was the younger brother, he did. By his second time through, he was hooked. Ramat didn't know any believers in Afghanistan, so he spent a few years outside the country. He felt called back in 2010, just as Christianity was starting to attract some attention. The problem was, the attention wasn't good. In the summer of 2010, a television station aired the baptism of some Christian converts. The reaction was intense. In two cities, hundreds rallied against Christianity, and several lawmakers said publicly that those who converted should be executed. The government intensified its search for believers. In August, they found Luke and Sarah. Luke knows how it happened. A Christian friend introduced him to a guy who was asking weird questions, like if he could get a hundred Bibles. Twelve hours later, the police showed up. A lot of police. Fifty to sixty officers from the Afghan intelligence service, from the prosecution department, from the anti-terrorism units. And, and um, they just raided our home. They said, we know everything about you. They just right away come to my bedroom and, and handcuffed me on the back. And they, sorry, our sleeping. kids are sleeping. They have, they have sorry, I've got what you sitting in one corner. They asked if Luke was a Christian. He said yes. They asked where his Bibles were. He showed them. When they dragged him out of the house to the car, he could see the neighbors gathered around, could hear them cursing him and wishing they'd known he was an apostate so they could have burned him alive. But those things we expected. We, didn't, we, we, we knew that when we are arrested, when we are find out we are believers, we knew that people are not going to be kind to us. There's going to be worse punishment to that. So we, we were not surprised by anything they would say or police would say. Staring down the barrel of a gun, Sarah didn't know what to do. When her daughter started crying, the woman accompanying the police, to make sure they weren't alone with a woman, told them they'd have to leave the room so she could feed the child. After they were gone, she advised Sarah to play dumb. Tell them you don't know anything. Sarah did, and the police let her go. But Luke and one of his Christian friends were taken to the police station and then to the Afghan intelligence service because their crime, provoking differences between religions, was against national security. There was a lot of evidence against them, Bibles and books, but the most evidence was on Luke's laptop, where he had documents and emails that would lead to other Christians. But God works even through corruption. Before Luke's laptop could be processed, someone in the Afghan law enforcement stole it. No other Christians were arrested. 
Instead, for the next month, Luke and his friend were kept with dangerous prisoners, many of them Taliban extremists. Pastor Terry Jones joins us now from Gainesville. Also with us from Orlando is Imam Mohammed Quran. At that time, an American pastor named Terry Jones announced that he was going to burn the Quran on the anniversary of 9-11. The anti-Christian fervor in Afghanistan whipped up, with thousands taking to the streets. Inside the prison, Luke's fellow inmates reasoned that if they killed him and his friend, they would be rewarded by going to heaven. Only tribal warfare among the prisoners kept Luke and his friend breathing. The guards also tortured and questioned Luke and his friend. Who else is a Christian? Where are you getting your money? Who's persuading you to do this? The hardest part was seven days in solitary confinement in a room too small to even lay down in. There's a small little window, you have to like jump and then you will see the sky. Small cell, there's nothing, no pillows, nothing, like very hard carpet. There, there's absolutely nothing. How and they did you just get beat through you that? and slap you. And yeah. they have like a two times bathroom break for one minute in okay. the morning and one minute in the evening. During the day, there's nothing. Like, okay. Just manage yourself. The physical pain from attacks by both the guards and the other prisoners lasted for weeks. Later, when Luke and his friend got out, they would need immediate medical care. The thing is, it wouldn't have been hard for Luke to leave. All he needed to do was to come back to Islam. Honestly, it was tempting. One, one, one day I said, I'm going to just get out of there. I was worried about my family, about my girls, two-year-old and a one-year-old. I don't want them to be raised by in a Muslim family. Mm-hmm. And that was difficult. So so I'm going to go and tell them. But then I you know, kind of reviewing back to what happened into my life. How did I become a Christian? Because maybe they are right. Maybe it's a coincidence. Right. Maybe it's not the truth. Luke went back and reviewed everything in his mind. He had gone looking for God. He had asked to read the Bible. He had decided to follow Jesus. He had been called and directed by the Holy Spirit, certainly, but he hadn't been persuaded by anybody else. That's between me and God. Yeah. Whether it's totally truth or totally lie. But it's not, nobody persuaded me. And I'm not persuaded because of anything. This is not giving me asylum. This is not giving me any monetary benefits, nothing. So I know myself that, that I did not make this decision based on those things. Thanks for listening to today's bonus episode of Gospel Bound. To hear the full story of Escape from Kabul, head over to the recorded podcast on Apple or wherever you listen to podcasts.